You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Tonight is talking about Makas Choshech, um, and we'll see what sort of uh, right, what sort of ideas we can get about Makas Choshech. And I thought the uh, the right way to begin would be with um, Harry Potter, um, because there are two important um, scenes in Harry Potter, or two important ideas in Harry Potter about the purpose of Choshech. So the first thing I gave you on the McCurry sheet is the scene in which Dudley and Harry are attacked by Dementors, uh, which is in Order of the Phoenix, um, where it says, where Dudley gave an odd shuddering gasp as though he'd been doused in icy water. Something had happened to the night. The star-strewn indigo sky was suddenly pitch black and lightless. The stars, the moon, the misty street lamps at either end of the valley had vanished. The distant rumbles of cars and the whisper of trees had gone. The balmy evening was suddenly, piercingly, bitingly cold. They were surrounded by total, impenetrable, silent darkness. As though some giant hand had dropped a thick, icy mantle over the entire alleyway, blinding them. Okay, right, so this is, right, so this is an attempt to depict a personal Makas Choshech. And what is um, really interesting, first of all, is that um, Rowling gets that darkness by itself is not necessarily, is not the same experience as we might call complete sensory deprivation. So, right, in order to, in order to convey the, uh, right, she, wa- she wants an experience that involves lots of senses. So the first thing is that it's not just dark, it's that all right. It's that there's no light, uh, right? The stars, the moon, the stars and the moons are turned off. Otherwise, it's not really dark. It's just darker. Second, it's cold, um, right? So there's right. So the right there's and third is silent. Okay, she doesn't talk. She doesn't say anything about smell, and there still has to be a capacity, a capacity for touch. But three, three senses simultaneously are involved. Right? It's cold, it's silent. And, uh, and it's, um, and the darkness is, uh, the darkness is total. Now, what is that supposed to be, right? What, what is she trying to convey? So she tells you in a, uh, later Professor Lupin explains, actually earlier Professor Lupin explains, right? This is after the Dementor attack on the train, um, that Dementors are among the foulest creatures that walk this earth. They infest the darkest, filthiest places. They glory in decay and despair. They drain peace, hope, and happiness out of the air around them. Get too near a Dementor, and every good feeling, every happy memory will be sucked out of you. If it can, the Dementor will feed on you long enough to reduce you to something like itself, soulless and evil. You'll be left with nothing but the worst experiences of your life. Okay, so let's assume that Rowling is writing a uh, is writing a medrash on Makas Choshech, and you have a sense, right? What's Mak- what, what Makas Choshech is supposed to be is this absolute experience of the presence of evil. So the question I want to ask is, is that really what the Egyptians are supposed to experience? Probably not, because we don't really, you know, at least I don't, I don't think that's obvious that the Egyptians are supposed to experience evil. Okay, so maybe we'll say that it's not evil. Dementors happen to be evil, but you could create the same thing, and the goal is to create bleakness and massive depression, right? And that's what they, right? So the experience of Makas Choshech for the Egyptians is supposed to be one of despair. Um, 
so it could be, right? It could be that, that that's a, that's a possibility. So if we go through the text of, uh, Chumash, only three psukim, about Makas Choshech, so that's one thing to have in mind, right? That despair, that the goal is to convey the experience of despair. And the part of the question we have to ask is, is Rowling right that for the, to, to be despair, it's not enough for it just to be night when it's supposed to be day. You need other senses involved. Do they have to be the same senses? Um, does it, right, is it just the sensory experience it does with the Dementors, or is it that the Dementors cause despair, and despair is what causes these kinds of sensory, these kinds of sensory impacts in ways that wouldn't be the other way around? So which way is it? Right? Is it really just, is Makas Choshech an effect, or is Makas Choshech is a cause? Um, is it compatible to have, right, to say that an experience, right, do we think that there is some kind of parallel between the experience of Dementors and the experience of oncoming divine judgment? Right, are those the same experience, or is there something, right, something palpably different about them? Okay, so that's the first question I wanted, right, here's a, a depiction of Makas Choshev. you have an instinct when you're writing the Medrash that you want, right, that you want to you want to turn it from ordinary darkness to above ordinary darkness, and you want to involve senses other than sight in the experience of it. And secondly, what is the emotional impact of it? And is the emotional impact of it separable from the moral impact? Okay. That's Harry Potter. Yep. Chosha, not Bechoros. Yeah. No. I think those are two different. I think those are two very different. That's why I'm suggesting that it might, you know, that's why I'm trying to ask the question is there a difference between the experience of Dementors and the experience of impending divine judgment? The experience of impending divine judgment could be a very holy experience, terrifying, right? But holy, right? So I yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's correct. What I think is that Rowling connects the experience of despair with the presence of evil. And now there may be a theological context to that because there are versions of or Christian theology in which despair is right, is the deadliest sin, um, which doesn't show have so much uh, so much resonance. That there is a um, I like talking right. There's a uh, there's a, a chapter in Rav Yosef Albo's uh, Seferi Karim in which he talks about the virtue of hope, um, which is, so far as I know, the only medieval Jewish theological discussion of hope as a virtue, and right, which is connected to this. Um, but generally, um, generally, I don't think there's so much Jewish discussion of hope as a virtue and despair as a despair as a vice. You can you can tie it into concepts of emuna that if you have emuna, you can't really despair. But I don't think that's quite the same thing. So it may be that there are theological resonances, which, uh, right, or cultural resonances, which Rowling 
mean the experience of despair has to be associated with evil, but we don't necessarily have to agree with that, right? We can think that there are that there appear that, you know, that there are notions of despair that um, that don't tie into that. Um, part of this is will tie into a question of whether there's ever an experience in which you can't do tshuva. Uh, right, so the um, right Gemara in in um, Brachos right says maybe Sandrin also says right that even a Ganav on the entrance of the Machteret should still right should still have God in mind, and the standard interpretation of that is that you can always do truva even at the last minute, and as long as you have the possibility of truva, so maybe there's um, so maybe there's no um, right there's no legitimacy to despair, but then again you know I think obviously that you, there could be something very much close to despair and. And um, the experience before the Dementor's Kiss is as close to despair as you get in Rowling, but it's, you, right, you still have the possibility of winning. Um, so, yeah, I think the question you're asking is exactly right. I think, the, I think that in principle, the experiences of despair and the experience of evil are separable. I think that part of the argument Rowling makes, and I think that's a very conventional argument in our society, is that despair and evil are tightly connected. Um, but I don't know that that has to be. So that's what so I'm asking the theological question. Maybe there are other ways in which you can experience despair that we would not see anywhere near as negative theologically. Okay, thank you. That was a great question. Um, other questions? That's an interesting story. I don't know that story. So it's an interesting story. I want you know, so I can't attribute it to the goat. Uh, I think that's probably right. I think um, probably, although many other people you will know more than me about this, Rav Nachman would talk about this a lot, uh, right? About the right, Rav Nachman talks about the the dangers of depression, right? He's he's the uh, I think he's the modern who talks most extensively about experiences about experiences of depression. So I think that's I think that's right. Um, my, I think in classical Jewish philosophy, it's pretty stark that we don't have anywhere near the same, um, the same discussions as you do in, um, in Christian theology, but yeah, could be, um, Interesting, right? Elio and Yona both, right, are the uh, right are the example of suicidal depression, uh, and both of them are out of despair. So that's an interesting connection, right? interesting connection. Um, and Elio, of course, ends up in a cave. Um, interesting. Okay, Okay, I am. Uh, I have to think about it as well. Okay, let's take a look at number two in Harry Potter, and then we'll uh, do other kinds of scripture. <laughs> um, okay, so the second episode is um, second thing is the Hand of Glory. Right, Hand of Glory. I gave you the uh, 
the Wikipedia page, right, that that uh, Rowling didn't make this up, right? The hand of the glory is the dried and pickled hand of a hanged man. Wikipedia happily gives you a picture, so you know exactly what a hand of glory looks like. Um, and it has lots, of, has lots of powers, but in Harry Potter, the hand of glory is a dark artifact, a shriveled hand which gives candlelight only to the holder. It can even shine through the veil created by a Peruvian instant darkness powder, which is, I think, the most common explanation of what happened in Mitzrayim. Uh, it was a massive sprinkling of uh, proving instant darkness powder. So one way of understanding what happened in Shemot is that Moshe throws a th- throws a large amount of proving instant darkness powder up, but Bnei Israel have hands of glory. Uh, unfortunately, you know, which are dark, which dark artifacts. So the thing about the hand of glory is that it um, it sheds light, but it's not it's light that only you can see. All right, and therefore it is, as uh, Morgan explains, the best friend of thieves and plunderers. So now in the Psukim, it tells us very explicitly that this is a, right, that what happens in Makas Choshech is that there is darkness, but the Jews have light in their Moshevot. So there's a huge Machloket raising, whether that means that there's a geographical distinction and there is Choshech in the rest of Israel, but not Choshech for, but not Choshech for B'nai, uh, where B'nai Israel are. Uh, but that, Really doesn't satisfy people emotionally, um, and it's much harder. As well, it's much harder to talk about absolute zones of light and dark in that way. And then you would figure that the Egyptians would just move. It wouldn't have the. It's not quite right. So it's much more. Um, it's much more attractive to read it as that the Jews have light, even where the even where the Egyptians don't. Um, right, that they're they're standing side by side. So I want to right. So the the most famous. Um, reading of the story, which reads uh, which reads the the contrast in Choshech and Or that way, is the one where in which the Jews spend all this time seeking out the the hidden treasures of the Egyptians, so that either and either taking them or so that later after Malchus Bechoros, when they come back to borrow things, they know exactly what it is. And nobody can hold it can hold out on them, and that is very much the hand of glory notion, right? That the Egyptians are sitting in pitch darkness and the Jews are going around. Uh, right, preparing themselves to be plunderers, um, and I always was a little bit uncomfortable with that, and so the rallying idea captures uh, captures that. Uh, there are two other explanations of it. Um, one, which is probably probably also um, are familiar with, is that uh, a significant percentage of the Jewish population dies during the um, dies during Makas Choshech. Um, the way that the Mechilta frames this is, right, the Emesai Mesu, when did these, this percentage of the Jews, right, it's, it's built off of Hamushim Alu Bnei Yisrael in Parsha B'Shalach, and there's a debate whether that means that one-fifth of the Jews or one-fiftieth or one-five-hundredth of the Jewish population is all that survives uh, Makas Choshech. It's an enormously bleak, um, bleak uh, medrash that this idea that the, that the vast majority of the Jewish population uh, right, less than one, right? It's less than one, less than one percent survives, according to Rabbi Nohrai. Um we could, we could all play. My friend Nachman uh, Levine would probably point out to me. We're talking about Makas Choshech, and the bleakest vision is offered by Rabbi Nohrai, who's the right, right, whose, whose name means light. Uh, but it's a bleak vision, right? It's a lightless vision, and it says, right, what? When do they? When do they? Do, do, do the Jews die during the three days of darkness? Because it says. That they didn't see each other. What does it mean? During the darkness, the the Jews would be burying their 
would be burying their um, their dead. The hodu v'shibchu but they're praising God because God is allowing them to bury their dead without the Egyptians seeing and celebrating. Okay, it's still, you know, you have to figure, you know, that's, a, that's an enormously impressive public sanitation job if you can bury, um, this version, like 24 million people uh, in three days. And you would think that afterwards that the Egyptians would notice that there are a lot fewer Jews than there were, than, than there were before. Um, so this is this is a matter which always um, always struck me as something that you know, that's very very dark and powerful. What's the point of trying to claim that even then only um, right, only a small percentage of the Jews um, survive? And you can play this out, right? There are points in Yeshaya where the ultimate redemption also seems to be uh, just uh, you know, a small a small remnant. Uh, I think the mainstream of Jewish tradition has very much tended to de-emphasize such notions and assume that the gula will be a will be a very broad gula and we tend to associate this notion of a saving remnant with apocalyptic uh, apocalyptic sects um, but I think we just have to recognize that there is this measure that Yitzhak Mitzrayim is this uh, very bitter bittersweet overall experience even though the ones who leave are very happy um so that's another right, another purpose of darkness. Here is that darkness enables what really what the purpose of the darkness in here is that it enables the Jews to cover up their sins. Right? It's not right. It's that the it's not that they can see and the Egyptians can't. It's that they can the Egyptians can't see what they are doing. Right? Which is a which is a very different experience. Pirkei um, Ezra, I believe, although I haven't yet seen it inside. Uh, right, tries to create a um, a midah connected midah for all the makot. Right, the, the Egyptians did this, therefore that happened to them. And the way it sets it up is, but there's no midah connected midah. What did the Egyptians do that earned them choshech? And the answer is, choshech isn't a punishment for the Egyptians. Choshech is a present to the Jews because it enables them to bury their dead without the Egyptians seeing. So that's a, that's also, I think, that's a stunningly dark explanation. To counterbalance that, here's an itziv that I, I saw for the first time today, and I, I am very fond of it. Uh, the itziv says the following, When people, right, when Egyptians didn't get up for three days, So the itziv says, shouldn't they all have died of thirst? All the Egyptians should have died of thirst. Ela Yisrael sheyaor b'moshvotam hoshitu lahem mazon v'chol ha'chrechi. Right, the Jews who right, the Jews who had light gave the Egyptians gave the Egyptians uh, food and water v'chol ha'chrechi and everything they needed, um, which might even mean that they took them to the bathroom. I don't know. Right, you, if you treat them as absolute uh, as absolute nursemaids and the Egyptians can't move anywhere on their own. Uh, and the Jews did not celebrate. Right, this is the inverse of the Medrash. So the, Medrash right, the Medrash said that darkness was there so that the Egyptians wouldn't celebrate in the Jewish downfall. And Siv says that darkness gave the Jews an opportunity to celebrate the Egyptians' downfall, but the reaction, but the reaction was not to celebrate. Right, that Bnei Israel did not celebrate the uh, the day of destruction of Mitzrayim. And did not take this as an occasion for revenge. And it says, if you want to know why it is that 
after Makat Bechorot, all of a sudden, the, right, the Jews find Chain in the eyes of Mitzrayim. So you can claim that it's causeless and it's irrational, and it's the product of direct divine intervention. But the Nitziv wants to give a more naturalistic explanation. He says that what caused the um, he says that what caused the Chain Am B'nei Mitzrayim is that when the Jews had the opportunity to, in essence, they could have killed every Egyptian either directly or indirectly, right, by, um, by, right, through, through, um, through, uh, dehydration. Instead, they turned themselves into, um, into health aids. And that, right, and that, and that, that generated gratitude. So that to me is it a, is, um, an amazing, um, an amazing inversion of the usual, um, of the usual understanding of the story. Uh, and very powerful. Uh, it's entirely, Possible that Nitziv um, had some sort of contemporary images, uh, things in mind that the Nitziv's commentary on on Chumash I think acquires more polemical errors over time. I think it's note he's still writing much more uh, straight shot commentary as I understand it. Um, but it's a powerful it's a powerful moral reading, and it is it picks up on something in the text because you can argue the simple reading of the text is that the Egyptians are helpless. And at the hands of B'nai Israel, and so why don't they attack? Right, you have this sort of uh, dissatisfying notion in the Medrash that they use the occasion to be sneaky. That's morally dissatisfying on many levels. You have this right, this really bleak vision that uh, they have no time to do anything, but right, but try desperately to cover up the reality that many of them actually deserved everything the Egyptians did to them in a deep moral sense, uh, right? They don't deserve redemption. And then you have um, this much light, you know, more light-filled reading of um, see if, you know, if you really wanted to pull it off, you could say that this is the moment in which the, the Jews demonstrate that they deserve redemption and that all the, right, and the way in which we know that the whole experience of the Makot is not one of vengeance is because given the opportunity to take revenge and thereby effect, effect, right, effectuate their own, um, their, their own exodus, but at the cost of turning themselves into murderers, they, instead, they stay a nurse. Um, any case, I, th- I, I am, uh, I think this initiative is becoming, is, um, rapidly making it into one of my favorite, level of favorite words, although I've only noted for 12 hours yet, so perhaps I'll find a darker, uh, a darker measure. Okay, let's turn to page three now, and then we'll start looking at uh, literary um, effects. Let's guess. First of all, do people have comments about that Nesiv? That do you all like it as much as I do, or do you uh, have you found a darker side to it? Very nice. Very nice. Uh, thank you. Okay. Anyone else? Okay. So we'll go on then. So I want to put, what I wanted to do was put together um, a couple of other biblical texts that deal with uh, with darkness. First of all, I just wanted to put in as an intertext that uh, we have another version of Makat Choshech in Telem Kufhei. 
how exactly you're supposed to read this in light of Chumash is a little bit um, challenging because it doesn't. It's, it appears to be retelling the Makot, but as you can see, it skips Makos five and six, and Choshech comes first. Um, right, um, which is a, a little bit odd in the retelling. And the truth is, if you looked at the narrative of Chumash, Choshech is not located in any kind of chronological order in the text. There's no Hasra. There's no dialogue with Paro at all, right? Choshech just appears in the middle, uh, in the middle of the story. And so it was tempting to try and see if one could construct a reading, uh, in which Choshech actually is the first Maka and the story is told achronologically. Um, I did not succeed in doing, in constructing such a reading today. Uh, but I put it out there, and if someone comes up with one, and I'm, you know, and I may try as a way of reconciling Tilim and Chumash, I think that would be really interesting. If Choshech turns out to be the first Makkah, I think that would fit, uh, it would fit well with a whole bunch of, of, of other Midrashim. But, so we just be aware, there's this, this passage which says, Shalach Choshech Vayach Sheikh. So that's an interesting notion, because here, Choshech is something sendable. Um, and then it has this interesting line after, it's Velo Moro et Devaro. And it's not clear at all what the word maru or maru um, means there. Does it mean they didn't transgress it? They didn't see it as authoritative? We'll have to take a look at that as well. So that's one, right, one intertext that says, um, right, shalach, um, right, shalach choshech. The version we have in Shemot, um, says the following, right? So, it's, just, it's not, it, it, I assume this is not a punishment of Shemayim. Uh, it's tempting to read this as an eclipse, right? But I, I don't, I'm not into naturalistic readings per se. Um, and then, right, Moshe does something with his hand um, towards heaven, and Choshech is on Eretz, right, on Eretz Mitzrayim. But then we have this interesting line, via Mesh Choshech. So what does via mesh mean? So the um, the the mem shin and shorashim is um, one of the things that um, if you are somebody who's really into diktuk, you can spend your life just dealing with mem sh- with verbs that have meant the mem shin. Does it mean that uh, to move to stand still, or is it in some way related to mamash? Uh, the reading that is closest to the dement to the dementor reading is that via mesh choshech means that the choshech becomes tangible. Um, right, that it's right, that it's a choshech that is that is oppressive to the sense of to the sense of touch and not just to the not just to the sense of uh, to the sense of light. Okay, then Moshe is is noteya do and then there's choshech which is choshech afila. So I figure is there a difference between choshech and choshech afila? And some commentators will pick up right that the afila is Moshe's is Moshe's contribution. Right, really, all Hashem said was choshech. But it turns out to be choshech afila, and then we have a description. Right, other people would argue that via mesh choshech turns into choshech afila, um, and then we have descriptions of what happens. Right, right, people can't see each other, um, but the question there is: right, Does that mean Jews can't see each other? Egyptians can't see each other? Egyptians can't see Jews? Um, or Jews can't see Egyptians, but that, that we'll see is a very rare thing. So hard to know what mitachtav means, but it seems to mean that people were, uh, right, and this connects to the tangibility notion, that people just can't get up. 
um, whether it's because it actually is tangible or because it's, um, you know, which again, I think is part of the, the Dementor reading that it's, there's a, a single, there's a single event physically, but that physical event has psychological ramifications that, 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 that governs your whole experience. So people can't even get up. Uh, um, so the Sibbus reading is that refers to Fine, okay, and then then Paro uh, Paro is willing to send them uh, right. He calls Moshe. He calls Moshe now. How he calls Moshe if he can't get anybody to get up? Separate issue, uh, right? It says nice. It's a new says there are all these Jews around taking care of them. And Paro tells one of the Jews, "Go call, right? Go call Moshe. Go right. Worship Hashem. You just have to leave your animals, uh, your animals behind." And Moshe says, nope, you're going to actually give us animals as well to sacrifice. Uh, nothing will be left behind, right? This is the point where it becomes obvious that they're not just going for three days, uh, you would think. Uh, well, Moshe says something interesting. We don't know what God will ask of us on our three-day journey um, until we go there. So we can't leave anything behind. Because the implication is that God might ask us to sacrifice everything, which is an interesting, uh, an interesting thing to say at this point. Uh, but interesting to me, though, is if we want to take the, we want to take the, um, the met, take darkness as a metaphor. So what Moshe is describing is that B'nai Israel, in a sense, are going off into darkness. Right, the Exodus, uh, the Exodus is not a. Um, is not moving into a situation of guarantees where you know what's going to happen. The Exodus is the Jews walking into something they don't know. Uh, there's the Yossi Rosenstein painting that I have on, in our room downstairs, um, which depicts the um, Kriyas Yamsuf, and the the beauty of the painting is that there are many paintings where you see, right, where you, and you expect to see paintings where you see people walking through the desert, and at the end, their focal point is you can see they're going to get through the desert, and they're going to get to the water. Right, that's a very common image, and the way Yossi Rosenstein uh, right, uh, paints um, Kriyas Yamsuf is the Jews. Right, the the Jews are are looking past the water into the desert. Um, right, and they're walking. Right, so they're walking. Right, and that's a part of the whole the, the whole meaning of Shemot is that the Jews are walking into the desert. So that maybe there's a contrast to darkness there, and then we pick it up and say this scene ends with. Uh, right with sight again, and Paro says to Moshe, "You won't see me anymore. Right, we won't see each other anymore. Right, you will no longer see my face. On the day you see my face, you will die." And Moshe says, "You're right. I won't see you anymore." So it's right. So there's a movement from the Egyptians can't see each other to Paro trying to ban Moshe from right from seeing him. Um, although eventually, right, eventually fails in this. I wanted to just raise the possibility that all those, uh, that the seeings are connected and possibly the Jews walking into something unknown is connected. And that's part of the meaning of Makar Choshech. Okay. Next text. Uh, so we have to go back to Horatius. Right? He says, what is Choshech? Particularly, what is the kind, what does it mean that there's a Choshech, which as we saw in Dylan, can be sent? So in the very beginning, right, we have this mysterious pasuk, the Aretzaita Tov Avo, the Choshech Al Tehom. So right, so the very beginning, Bereshit Parlokim, the land is Tov and there is Choshech Al Tehom. Now, what kind of Choshech is this? 
right? Because so you have a it, you have a question in terms of the interpretation of chumash. Uh, right? At what point in time, if it is at a point in time, can we say v'choshechal pnei tohom? Because the problem obviously is that the next pasuk says he or. So what would it mean for there to be choshechal pnei tohom and not elsewhere? Um, can you have chosh? Right? Is choshech more than an absence? If you if you had choshech before there was light, it suggests that perhaps choshech is more than in absence. And through the rest of of Parsha Bereshit, it seems that choshech is something uh, more than the absence of light, because right God separates between the or and the choshech, as all the um, all the commentaries point out. You can't do that really. Right, light, there's always going to be a space between light and darkness. Uh, it's very it's a we, we call behashmashot. Challenging. Choshech even gets a name. Choshech is called Lila. Um, and then, right, then we have the, the fundamental problem that God separates between or and, between or and a Choshech here on day one, but then on day four, he sets the Merot Lavdil bin Ora bin Um, that the whole notion of how a Merot separates an or and a Choshech is problematic because Merot, what Merot do is they create or. They don't separate between or and a Choshech, so you could, but if you're reading it naturalistically, you can say, that Fayabdel is a foreshadowing what's going to happen on day four. That what happens on uh, on day four is that there are two separate lights, and the light of the moon is and what separates Yom, which is uh, Yom, Yom and Lila, is that Yom is one Moor and and Lila is the other Moor. And so what we call Choshech here is not real darkness, but moonlight. Uh, but you understand that um, if many people look at this and assume. That this uh, right, that this must be referring to some other kind of light and darkness, and not to what we call physical light and darkness. Um, but I think that lots of us are aware, from Rashi, if nothing else, that there's what we call an or haganuz, right? That there's a hidden light that occurs on day one, um, and then right, and that that light Rashi says is hidden for for tzaddikim um, to occur, uh, right? To 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 occur in Moshe Mashiach. Uh, and that day four is talking about what we call physical light. So the interesting question that I have to raise then is, um, so obviously it's very tempting if you're in this framework to say, aha, in the midst of darkness, so it must be, if they can, if the Jews can have light in the midst of darkness, so as opposed to this very, very dark thing called the hand of glory, uh, what you can say is that there is a kind of light which is only visible to the worthy. And so, what happens is is that the the or haganuz right the light that God hides on the first day is brought out for the Jews during makat choshech. Right? So that's one way of reading the story. Um, another way of reading the story is to try and figure out, and this will get us back to the Dementor reading, is that maybe if there's a light on the first on the if there's a light on the first day, and that light right which is hidden, and before there was light on the first day, there was darkness. So maybe this darkness is not the same darkness as the fourth day either. Maybe this darkness is related to the light of the first day, and maybe maybe even though the light and dark of the fourth day, really the dark is just the absence of the light, or even or just a relative term, the dark is just a period in which there is less light, or there's only reflected light, there's no, autonom- there's no autonomously generated light, maybe the choshech of the, uh, right, of the first day is a different kind of choshech, and maybe Makat Choshech, when it says right, that God sent Choshech in Tilim, what it's telling you is that the, the Choshech he's sending is not what we call darkness, 
but is the is the antithesis of the light that is saved for tzaddikim. Uh, right, so this is the right, and so then we have uh, that's that's what I would say would lead to a very much a dementor reading that explains what goes on in the what goes on in Choshech as a um, as a recreation of the uh, it's a recreation of uh, recreation is not the right term it's a redecreation it's the experience of the world which is still completely chaos where God hasn't even yet said let there be light. And right, that one can see would be you know, an enormously uh, terrifying experience, uh, whether it's connected to an experience of evil, um, right? So that's part of the whole notion about how you experience the nature of the nature of creation. You could claim that the um, if you take the 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 approach, which I like, that the that creation happens because God wants to express Chesed. So then, a world in which there is no creation is a world in which there is no Chesed. If you pull, play that out and you say that a world in which there's no chesed is a world in which there's pure din, so now we're in the experience. That it's the experience, it's the experience of divine judgment, but it's the experience of divine judgment that's not the experience we have of divine judgment. It's right, just an experience in a world in which there is nothing else. Uh, so it might, I think that's a, a very strong way of getting to the, um, getting to what I call the Dementor reading. Um, um, right, so if you focus on the light, the Oraganus, so that can get you to the hand of glory reading, but in a positive way. If you focus on the Choshech, and you think the Choshech is the Choshech, is the Choshech Haganus, then you get very much to the Dementor reading. Okay, uh, one other inter- intertext um, is that in uh, Shemot Perak Yudalit, you have a description of what happens when the Jews uh, are already on our way out. Right, and Pharaoh and the Mystery Army is pursuing them. So the story says, So the angel who is traveling in front of the uh, Bnei Israel camp moves behind them. The Amud Anan that, go, that is traveling before them in daytime moves behind uh, right, moves behind them. It serves. Okay, so right, so the Mystery Army is pursuing. Bnei Israel, the, there there is a Malach and a Mudhanan in front of Bnei Israel, and it moves behind them. Uh, and then we have this interesting phrase: "Vahi he'anan v'hachoshech v'yoyer es halayla." So there is the cloud and the choshech. V'yoyer et halayla, and v'yoyer et halayla seems to think that there is light in the night. So here we have. Once again, an interweaving of Choshech and Or. We don't know where the Or is coming from. We don't, for that matter, know where the Choshech is coming from. If we were you know, engaged in you know, literary parallelism, we would have to think that the Choshech is the Malach. Because right, the two things that went behind them are the Anan and the Choshech. And the question is, what's what's the Right. So that's a whole question of, first of all, the Karav Zelzeh, well, the Nays are all running away, so why would they be tempted to, right, why, how can you have an inter, uh, why would, why do you need to prevent the movement towards each other? Uh, so you can try and read it and say that it doesn't mean move, movement towards each other, it just means that A didn't draw close to B, and so look, Rav Zelzakalala means as a result of this, the, uh, as a result of this, the Mitzri army did not approach the Jews, but that's a little bit of weak reading of Zelzay, I think. Um, you have the other reading, that um, which is built on the intertext of uh, right in uh, Mishaya, 
which says it's the Malachim. Don't draw near to each other, and that's where you get the Midrashim about the Malachim not saying Shira on the night of, uh, on the night of Kriyat Yamsuf. But our focus is just, what is, what is this Choshech doing here? Okay, so here is, um, the Mechilta. Uh, the Mechilta, Mechilta says the following. So there's an Anan and a Choshech. The Anan is faith, right, is towards the Jews, but the Choshech is towards Mitzrayim. So this, this scene is a recreation of Makah Choshech. Right, so just like in Makas Choshech, here again, Bnei Yisrael are in light, and Yisrael is in Afila. And he quotes, right, and he, right, he quotes the Look, and here, so the Mitzrayim can't move, so here we, here we have a full recreation of, uh, a full recreation of Makas Choshech, um, leading perhaps to a recreation of Makat Bechorot at the end of the uh, Kriyat Yamsuf. And then, then the, the Michilta goes further. He says, "V'chenata motzelat leatid lavo." Makas Choshech will be recreated again in the ultimate redemption. Harei Omer kumi ori kiva ori chuchvot Hashem alayech zorach mipnei ma. So you're killing reading Yeshaya. Kine Choshech yichase eretz. Right. So right. So Bnei Yisrael have to go forth because their light has come, even though darkness has covered the land. Barafel luumim ve'alayech yizrach Hashem. Right. So this. Right, so the impression you get in Yeshaya, right, is you, you know, you, you're, you're painting it, there's darkness all around, and there's a beam of light coming down on, uh, on, on B'nai Yisrael. And then we go and we pull, and we, and we pull out the full, the full parallel. But here we have a very interesting claim, right? So what we call the hand of glory reading was that there's light, and in, by that light, B'nai Yisrael can see, and the Egyptians cannot. But here we have a different reading. Everybody who was who was locked in who who will be locked in this darkness or possibly the Mitzri army uh, over here. Yisrael um, So the Mitzri army is in darkness, and they see the Bnei Yisrael uh, in light and celebrating. And but they're not frozen in this case, right? Which is really interesting. And so they're so maddened by the sight of an Israel celebrating that they start shooting arrows at them and and catapults. And the uh, right, but the Anan blocks everything, right? They right blocks everything, so they can stand in place and shoot, but the Anan blocks everything. So that is for one part. That's the Nitziv is is in a sense inverting that. Because the vision we have here is that the Mitzrim, Mitzrim are seeing the Jews in light, and they react with anger, violent jealousy, and uh, the Tzivah says that, on the other hand, Bnei Israel are in light, seeing the Egyptians in suffering, and their reaction is charity. Uh, I should say I much prefer. I should, I'm going to try to be consistent and say Mitzrim. I don't like using modern terms, um, and I think it has unfortunate implications. Um, okay, so the um, but. <laughs> Here we have the image, right, that the light enables, the light enables you to be seen, although, and the only use that you can have, right, that the people in darkness have of the light is that they can see the people in the light. 
Now that's the exact opposite of the hand of glory. Right? The point of the hand of glory is that you can is you can do everything you write or the, what we, the burial reading is that you can do everything unseen. And here the point is that uh, it's much more. If you think of Plato's image of the cave, what it, what it does is it turns the people in darkness into the theater audience, and the people in light are the actors on stage, and it makes clear who the focus is on. So that's a completely different reading of right. So if you read this, so this is formally a reading of the scene, um, the scene by the sea, and which is right. It's 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 a vision of the world to come, right? It's built off the vision Yeshaya, right? Uh, right. But God, God's glory is shining down on you. Uh, if you take that and you read it back into the story of, right, the story, the story before Kriyat Yamsuf, and then I'm saying, and that, that, that has to be read back into Makas Choshech. So the point of, the point of Makas Choshech then is it creates a sense it creates a situation where it's clear that you're helpless and that you have no role except as a witness. Um, and you could try and tie that back into the constant refrain throughout the story, the Adum Yisraim Keni Hashem, that in fact, the whole purpose of Makat Choshech is to turn the Mitzrayim into witnesses of God's power. And so Makat Choshech, is the right is the fulfillment of that right that they have nothing to do but to stay in place and watch right and and watch God's glory play out. I'm happiest if the way they watch it play out is the way the Nitziv um, said it. Okay, but we should be aware that there are lots of other ways of um, reading this. I gave you the Medr Seichel Tov, which is not um, not Chazal, uh, but later it says the following. Uh, so he starts off with the reading that we saw above. So the cloud turns in right. The cloud turns into a, a, a radiant, a radiant light. So he says the darkness is a metaphor, and it's a metaphor for the um, the bima of judgment. Right, the bima is what, where you get whipped. Right, the dot. Right, I guess the equivalent would now be the. Uh, the defendant's dock, um, right? So, so, right? So, the Seichel Tov really reads this, I think, very much as the right, the Dementor reading. It's it's not it's not darkness. It's the experience of the imminence, uh, the imminence of judgment, and ju- and their ju- their judgment is dark. Okay, Vayoyer Etalayla. So here we, it turns out to be a, a fascinating dispute about Vayoyer Etalayla. Um, which will play out some of the positions here, right? Yesh Lomar Vayoyer equals Siluk Ha'or Min Halayla. Vayoyer Talayla means that it sucked the light out of the darkness. Not that it put light into the darkness. Right? This is, I could have given you a uh, another Harry Potter scene, right? the, the very first scene with Dumbledore and the Putter Outer, where you suck all the light out of the, right, out of, out of the lights, right? So that's what, that's what happens here, is that all the light is sucked out of the of 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 Israel, right? Silakor, Silakor min halayla. Vehimin amilin habonin vehasotrin. Right. This is one of these words. I forget what the English term for it is. A word that means itself and its opposite. And he gives other examples, right? So vayoyer etalayla doesn't mean that he that they put light into the dark into the darkness. Rather, that light was removed from the darkness. Um, okay. There's an amuda esh that's before Machane Israel. All right. So they say that 
that um, so on the Bnei Yisrael side, there's an Amuda H, which is giving light, and on the Mitzri side, there is something, maybe the Amud Hanan, that is removing all the light from the place. Bayu Yisrael be'ora u'mitzrayim b'chashvecha. Okay, so now we're back in the scene where Bnei Yisrael are on stage in the light, and Mitzrayim b'chashvecha. So you remember that, right, we just saw uh, up here that the result of that, right, we just saw the Mechilta, the result of that was that the Jews are on stage and the Mitzrayim can see them. Well, what about the reverse, right? Um, can you see the can you see the audience? So he says, Yisrael ochlin ochlin v'shosin u'smechim ve'enan roim esam mitzrayim shoyuchashecha So that what it works is right. So the bnei Yisrael are on stage and there are spotlights on them, and the actors can't see past the spotlights. So the mitzrayim are firing at them. And the Malach is protecting them, but the key psychological element here is that the Israel are completely unaware of this. Right? That's the addition. That's the that's the addition the Seichel Tov puts in that, that, right? That what the what the Anan does is it imposes an experience on the Mitzrayim, which leads to right now the Israel have no idea what is going on on the Mitzri side. All they know is that it's light where they are, and that there's this absolute shield between them, and they celebrate, and they have no idea what this is doing to the Egyptians psychologically. So that's also, I think, a very interesting aspect of it. So you have a version in the Siv where Bnei Yisrael are taking care of Mitzrayim, a version of the Mechilta, in which Bnei Yisrael are celebrating, and the uh, Mitzrayim are, are impotently firing things at them, and perhaps they're aware, and that increases their celebration. And the Seichel tells reading where they just end up living in completely separate universes, that have an impact in the sense that the Mitzrayim can see Bnei Israel, but Bnei Yisrael, but that has no impact on Bnei Israel at all. They don't have any idea that the Mitzrayim are seeing them. Um, yeah. I think that's... Yeah, right. I think it's a very, it's a very interesting reading. Like, what would have, what would they have done if they had seen this? Right? Would they have stopped celebrating if they had known? Right? If they had known the result of it was that the Mitzrayim were firing catapults at them? Right? I think that the, I think that perhaps what the Seichel Tov is saying is, it would be immoral to be celebrating if you could see what was happening to the Mitzrayim, but they don't know. All they know is that there's a wall, and that therefore that justifies them in celebrating. But you know, but it doesn't change the fact that Mitzrayim that, that it has this effect on the Mitzrayim. And I guess you could say that in the same way that the um, that in the Sims reading, it's the generosity they show during Choshech that leads to the Chain. Perhaps part of what the Seichel Dov is trying to do is explain why the Mitzrayim charge when the when the veil is removed, because this entire time, right, as opposed to being awed, they're just furious. Uh, right, but Bnei Israel are not responsible for that because they weren't teasing them. Right, it wasn't taunting; it just happened that way.
uh, that'd be very nice. I would, uh, I would, I, um, I, I don't know if the Nitzvah says that, but that'd be very nice. I like it very much. Okay. I see that we're, um, that we're, that, um, this was cool. Thank you. I want to just get a couple of things before we, uh, before we're done. Um, happily, I won't get to everything that was on the McCurdy, which is the first time in a while. Uh, it's, it's good to have that again. People are participating. Uh, so I just wanted to point out um, another interesting reading. So you have this dispute. Ibn Ezra, Ibn Ezra hates the reading that says that uh, Bayara means Bayara means um, darkness. He thinks there has to have been light. Most other people assume that there's light and darkness. The, uh, p- playing out what we just said, let's let's take a look at uh, Rav Yosef Ibn Kaspi does with light and dark. So he says, So see how mistaken or how or how astray the right the people who preceded me, the commentators who preceded me, are from the truth. Because they don't know logic. Right? Professor Ben Kaspi is an unabashed philosophic elitist, and he thinks that the only way you can possibly understand Chumash is if you understand philosophic logic. Yibinjanach thought that you could um, write that the shot of the work is and that's all talking about the Mitzrayim. So how can that be? That would create Choshech and Or um, relating to the same subject, and that can't be. Yibinjanach was forced, you know, engaged in forced readings. Ad so he, right, so what he's compelled to do, as we saw, is you have to reverse the reading and say means that he actually he took the light away. Ibn Ezra Barachmi said, but Ibn Ezra rejected Ibn Janach's reading, he, he fled from it. But he could not find a safe a safe place to flee to. Therefore, right, he had to say that the, there are two there are uh, opposite subjects to Hanan Vachoshech on the one hand and the other, other. Rotsuni Haorvachoshech So Ezra has to say that Hanan Vachoshech relates to one subject, namely Mitzrayim, right? And Vayoyer Talayla, right, refers to the other subject, the Jews. Vehema Mitzrayim Vishraelim, Kimoshevin Unklus, which is also what Unklus says. But on this Ibn Kaspi says, And if the Torah had said this, right, the Torah had said that there was, as it did by Machas Choshech, that there was Choshech for Mitzrayim, but for Bnei Yisrael, Hayaor that would be, that would be correct. But, um, right, but he says that's not true, right? Do we have the right to add and subtract the Chumash at will? If that's the case, right, then there's no point in having uh, in having in having chumash at all. If we can just change its meaning, so that can't be that either. Aval diber al klal halayla bichlal hamakomahu. So Ibn Kaspi says it has to be that the entire darkness, the entire night, was a combination of choshech and or. Right. So logically. There has to right, there has to have been a mixture of of Choshech and Or for for both encampments because they are next to each other. So he says in this overarching time, there was both there were both it was both Choshech and Or in this place. 
What he means is that there was strobe lighting. There was right, there was there was uh, there was night which was constantly lit with very bright flashes of lightning. There was no right. There was no quiet at night. All it was always lightning. Right. So also at Mamar Sinai it describes a um, right a heavy a heavy a thunderstorm. Right, because there was a heavy wind blowing the entire time. Uh, right, heavy uh, uh, um, a storm wind blowing the entire time with lightning. Right, so that what's going on is the classic deep of night lit by lightning flashes. And here's his claim. So Ibn Kaspi says that everybody, everybody was blinded by the constant interchange between, right, between, dark, between darkness and light, and therefore the Mitzrayim couldn't move, but it wasn't that B'nai Yisrael, it wasn't that B'nai Yisrael had light and the Mitzrayim did not, it's that everybody was subject to these strobe, right, to these strobe flashes, and because of these strobe flashes, uh, nobody could see. Uh, Stephen Kaspi has this really this fascinating attempt at explaining the pasuk. I think it's pretty compelling. The vayoyer, um, the vayoyer means light and not darkness. Although, as many people point out, right, this is the this is the introduction to the first parak, the first sugya of Masechet Psachim, which is about whether or the arba asar means right means uh, the the night or the day of the uh, of the fourteenth. And that's um, and that and this the first sugi there quotes a whole bunch of cases which might seem to demonstrate that or is one of the words that can mean itself and its opposite and the rishonim have their own examples of such things. Uh, what Ibn Kaspi loses is all the intertexts because if this story is one in which there is or for uh, there's there's or in choshech for both Mitzrayim and Bnei Yisrael and they're both equally um, equally incapacitated. So then, there's no parallel whatsoever to the um, there's no parallelism whatsoever to the right to makas to and nothing really uh, nothing really uh, more you can do to um, to bring the, the parallelism to gula. Um, okay, it's running. Um, should point out the refresh um, refresh takes the stage reading that I gave, so you shouldn't think I uh, I made it up. Refresh says that what really happening is that it's, there's pitch darkness everywhere except. Um, right, uh, right. He's talking he's talk about Mamar Sinai, right? Right. So he he thinks that Har Sinai was that point where the audience is is in black and the and and the state and the stage is lit, and that seems to me that's a very reasonable reading of our story, um, as well. Uh, okay, so we won't have time to do, but just introduce you. There's a the Malbim here has um, an absolutely. Uh, an absolutely brilliant reading in which he does, in fact, connect the um, connect all connect all these um, all these all the intertexts together. Um, so let's just just to take a look so you can see how it begins. Um, right. So he says, He takes right. He takes a uh, the pasuk of the hill of his intertext and he says, "Midrash Omer, Amara Kadosh Baruch Hu." The uh, Malachim, right? The Mitzrayim deserve Choshech. The Mitzrayim, the Malachim, all vote in favor of 
of uh, imposing choshech. That's the Lord of But here's the line I want. Right, so it says that God sent the darkness to them. Where did the darkness come from? So it turns out that there's a machloket of Yudah and Nechemia. Rabbi Yudah says, Mechoshech shel mala. It's the darkness that surrounds God in Shemaim. Rabbi Nechemia omer, Mechoshech shel Gehenim. Rabbi Nechemia says it's the darkness, right, it's the darkness of Gehenim. So we end up is, right, in the, this is a machlokus within the Dementor reading. Uh, one of them, Rabbi Nechemia says that actually what they are experiencing is a darkness that has no kedusha in it, uh, right? It's not it's not an it's not an awesome darkness. It's a terrifying darkness. Maybe there's some religious edification in experiencing it, but there's nothing there's nothing religious about the experience at all. Rabbi Yudha has this fascinating claim. Right? Rabbi Yudha says that the the unique choshech is the choshech of Shemayim. It's the choshech that. Um, that sur- that surrounds God in Shemayim, it's the Choshech HaGanuz, and so you have to try and figure out, uh, right, what is it, right, what does it mean that the experience of Choshech from Mitzrayim was something that was a rare religious, uh, religious experience? What is it that the Jews, um, that the Jews had with them? Uh, right, he says that, that, you know, that the, since we're dealing with the original separation of light and dark, it meant whenever B'nai Israel, wherever B'nai Israel went, the light went with them. Um, and so the, it's not, so, it's not so, right, so that every, every member of B'nai Israel is on stage individually. Um, right, it's not that they're all sitting, it's not that the Mitzrayim are all sitting in a cave watching the Jews up on stage. It's that all B'nai Israel are on stage because they have the, uh, because they have the Or, um, the Or Haganus shine, shining on them. And maybe, Right, not maybe that actually casts light, but it creates a situation where the only light the Mitzrayim have is the light that is cast for them uh, by Bnei Israel. Okay, so you can think about that reading. Uh, Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.